Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. A quick thank you to the T5 peeps. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Dark Machine, Try Again 95, Astray the Dreamer, Mezik, Udic Joel, German Chemist, Casper Arnholtz, and Chaos to Must. Thank you very much. Chapter 371 The room was fashioned to look like a temperate rainforest glade. A barbling stream moving around and over rocks. Huge ancient trees festooned with moss mossy boulders, and abundant ferns. High above the ground, an arboreal octopus swung from branch to branch, looking for tasty-tasty wooden snails to snack on. Below, at the edge of the pond, sat a golden mantid wrapped in a genuine anime land kimono, the pond displaying an image from far away in the depths, acting as a 2.5D display. Water dripped around the mantid as she watched, the ferns rustled with the unfelt breeze, and once in a while, the knocking of the hard shell against the wood anchored. Dreams of something more wringed her hands, even as she slowly scraped her blade arms together, as she watched the images in the pool of water. Back slightly on the other side of her was a huge hairy creature's Pacific Northwest Sasquatch. No power. We're going to have to cut our way in. The suited figure said. Dreams nodded, even though she knew the boarding specialist couldn't see her, hear her, and she wasn't in command of the exploration party. She watched as the fusion torch cut through the thick battle steel. Crystallization of battle steel looks like old formula consistent with Type 1 and Type 2 precursor autonomous war machines, the speaker said, taking samples for in depth spectra analysis and lab work. Dreams knew that it would be nearly impossible to get a date off the sample, but knowing its makeup might point to who created it. After a long moment, graviton pads were attached to the hull plating and the plating was pulled away. The boarding specialists were all braced in case there was an outgassing, but none occurred. No atmosphere, no radiation or energy readings, the lead of the boarding crew stated. Going in. Dreams leaned back slightly turning to stab the sushi roll with the blade arm so that she could nibble at it. She was nervous, and when she got nervous, she ate. She knew that she was starting to put on weight, but the last several months of travel, exit into a system, travel again had been putting the stress on her. Dreams reached out and touched the runes crudely engraved in the rock next to her, rewinding the video slightly. The space station reappeared. The boarding team shuttle had slowly moved around it, getting it from all angles. It was covered in space dust, to the point that any detail in the lines was gone. Some things could only be guessed at, including what was estimated to be solar panels. It was covered in space dust, more than enough to coat it in cobwebs. Still, it was massive. There were what appeared to be versions of smaller AWMs attached to the ring collars and docked. It was armored, although the armor was damaged in places beneath the space dust. Even Dreams' untrained eye could tell that the station had suffered multiple debris impacts. 
she could also tell that the structure was, to use the ironic word, alien to anything that she'd ever seen before. The angles were wrong. The design was wrong. The lengths of the main beams were wrong. The placement of the stellar energy collectors was wrong. The ships were wrong. To use of docking collars was wrong. Everything about the facility was just wrong to Dream's eye. If there are any bodies on board, what are the chances that we would even identify as remains and not carbon dust? Dreams asked one of the other mantids in the room. The russet-colored mantid fights signaled the equivalent of a shrug. It depends on how fast the bodies were exposed to vacuum. Depending on how much water and atmosphere was left when the system went down, depends on how cold it could get and how fast, she said. Most of the decay would come from internal bacteria before those two died, if the station went dark fast. But we know nothing about this race. I hate the way it looks, Dreve said softly. How did it end up out here, do you think? Fights wondered. She looked at the green mantid sitting and watching. 117 was miffed. Part of him felt that he should be allowed to enter the structure with the other engineer-cast green mantids. But the captain of the vessel had denied his request, citing that 117 was the diplomatic team and thus was not to be put at risk. Still, he had been asked a question and it would only be polite to answer. Fights watched as gravitational formula, speed formula, all appeared on the pond. The view showed a space station, then pinpointed stars to give a set of referential points. Without those, the station was merely still, unmoving. When using fixed points, 117 showed that the station was moving at 31 kilometers per second and the direction. Then it did an estimation of age based on dust accumulation, then pinpointed where it would have come from. 117 then threw up that it had no rotational speed beyond slow tumbling on three axes, meaning that its rotation was not in order to use rotation as artificial gravity. Can you determine which stellar mass it came from? Dream asked. 117 flashed the thumbs up icon and moved over to the stump, looking at the water inside of it and began running computations and estimations. Lots of molecular welding, lots of atomic decay, one of the boarding team was saying. We're basically going to only get basic shapes. Dreams kept watching as the boarding team moved through the station. When they found the first body, she gasped, jumping back as something primitive, something primal, in the back of her mind reacted to its appearance. It was tall, dark purple, shriveled up from vacuum desiccation. It wore the remains of some kind of armor, with heavy crystals on the shoulders and around its conical head. There were crystals down the arms, as well as the chest. What? Who is that? Greaves asked. What are they? The camera holder knelt down, reaching towards the body. I know, I know, don't touch it, they said, answering someone else's words. Look at what the crystals are set in. Dreams frowned and leaned forward. What is that? One of the Sasquatches rumbled a single word. War steel. Dream shook her head. Wrong color. War steel is black. That is deep purple. War steel. Pinion mumbled again. Dreams watched the camera holder move on, heading for where logic and geometry dictated should be one of the control rooms. It would make sense to put it near the central hub. Most species, but humans put the habitation core in the center to be protected by everything else. 
but Terrence put the control and command center and left the Habs at the outside. Dreams shuddered at how the Terrans prioritized things. Got something, the team leader said, putting back Dreams' attention. It was a heavily armored door. Dreams noted that it was slightly askew, as if it had jumped the track. As Dream watched the camera bearer move back, a massive black warbore moved up with a wall steel pry bar, jamming it into the slight gap and wrenching at it. It took a few moments, but the door suddenly crumbled like it was poorly dried ceramicrete, protesting that he didn't wrench it that hard. 117 slid to a stop, looking down. He opened a small window in the pond and rewound it, then started flashing icons. Dreams calmly clinked and the captain was requesting communication. Go ahead, Captain, Dreams said. Your technician, 117, is requesting samples from the door and the two corpses. Do you concur? The captain asked. Dreams looked at 117, who was practically vibrating with urgency. Yes, she said. The captain just closed the line. Dreams went back to paying attention to the room. The boarding party was slowly moving through it making sure that they got plenty of angles and lingering. There was nearly a dozen dead bodies, all of them desiccated and ruined by time. Wait, tell them to go back. I want a close-up of their hands, Fights suddenly said. The cameras moved in on different bodies and Fights took a good look. That finger twisting. That's not natural, Fights said. You can see where the flesh was damaged. Looks like broken bones. They clawed at the dolls from the locks of it. It wasn't naturally tossed out of the system, Dreams guessed. No, judging by from the way the dolls are jammed in place, it probably took a high kinetic hit. Not enough to destroy it, but enough to shift all the dolls, Fight said. 117 flicked through the formula. 117 agrees with me. He's looking at the drone mapping scans, Fight said. 117 had it now. The angles on the door hatches, the slight shifting that the second drone mapping scan had found, some serration in the metals, and other damage. He moved to and spun the outside mapping, stopping at a single section. There were two mapping drones moving across the section. He reached out, took control of them, and ran a firmware and software update, ordering its creation engine to run off two pieces of equipment and installed them remotely. It took 117 all of six and a half minutes to accomplish. He moved in close, dropping down to the crater. The drones inside had gotten to that section. There was serious spalling from where the inside corridors had flexed inward, gone past the tensile strength and shattered into fragments. He ignored the shredded desiccated corpses. He couldn't care less. They were meat and meat was someone else's problem. He took three samples with the external probe then backed out, having the probe drone run for a main ship. It took eight minutes for it to arrive at the lab. He was already hooked into the software and quickly ran tests on the scrapings that he'd done. Dreams was looking at the boarding party, examining what was left of the machinery. It was all fused together, unknown eons of exposure to vacuum, deep space cosmic rays, and more had led to the molecular bonding. She saw 117's icon pop up, Yes, Dreams asked as the ship's primary engineer for materials handling was tied into the call. The formula was thick, intense, and Dreams frowned. What is it? The ship's material engineer stared at the formula, then obviously looked at something on his terminal. 
Phasonium, physically active metal alloy, can retain phasic energy, mainly used by your people up to the human matted war, Madam Diplomat, the engineer said. Your people discontinued use of it during the war because it turned out to be less than useless against Terran military forces. Dreams stared at the Warner. You're saying that our people were involved, she asked. More formula, a quick animated picture of a green mantid firing a gun in quick sketch of a facility. The facility tumbling away, going cold and dark. So, we attacked the station, Dreams asked. 117 summed up the picture of a warrior cast. He then used a crude sketch of the creatures in the station, as well as the crystals. He then poured in the formula. Dreams waited for the engineer to finish looking at what 117 was putting up. She had to admit, she had never seen the engineer cast Manted that excited. As she watched, more and more Greenish joined him, all of them looking at the materials being brought over. Um, I thought we were going to tag it for archaeologists, Fight said, pointing at how one of the boarding party got in a tug of war over what looked like what might be a sidearm before another drone zapped him and the first sped away. Speak's voice startled both Manteds as he stepped out of the shadows. 117 invoked technological security protocols. He and the other Green Brethren believe that we have found here is vital to the war effort and to our mission. Ah, Fight said. The ship's engineer came on the call. The engineers are all excited. It looks like this is more than just a random extinct species wreckage. Dreams nodded slowly. Yes. According to the engineers, the crystal are physically aligned, can store phasic energy as well as drain it. Apparently, your people used to use this before phasic energy stabilization systems were created, the chief engineer said. According to the engineers, the armor with all the crystal is phasium, phasonium, warsteel alloy with phasic aligned crystals. He stared. A trick of the light showed the red fire in his eyes. They say it's combat armor. What's your opinion, Rack? Pinion? Dreams asked her two guards. They both were still for a long moment. 117 is correct. Heavy phase at combat armor, Rack said. Thank you, gentlemen, Dreams said. BBW alloy. How combat effective is it? Beaks asked. The chief engineer shook his head. An adult Terran who was little annoyed could rip an inch-thick plate of it like it was nothing. A Terran child who was happy and excited could damage it by accident. Worse, in the presence of an enraged one, it combusts both physically and psychically. Dreams gave a snark sound. So, it's about as effective as lighting oneself on fire. She laughed out loud. The warrior cast must have been in for a rude shock. That's why, a year into the war and the battle for terror, your people didn't wear that armor anymore, and most of the time, the warrior caste and some warrior caste went naked, the chief engineer said. Speaks started laughing. Behold, mankind, he laughed. Dreams of something more sat quietly in her glade, holding Mr. Rings and petting him. The engineers and navigation crewmen had determined, based on speed and apparent age, where the station had come from. The more interesting fact was from the ship's anomalous materials handling and engineering section. She understood some advanced physics. Not much, mind you, just enough to know if someone was playing with her. But 117 had explained it to her. 
using simple icons, simple formula, and short bursts of code. The phasic armor and the majority of the equipment, as well as the matter that made up the cells of the dead creatures, all had a problem at the subatomic level. She knew that particles vibrated and moved, that many of them carried potential energy within, but beyond that, she was lost. But apparently, the atoms and subatomic particles, all the way down to the squawks and bejooms, or whatever the 117 kept calling them, she wasn't sure, that made up other material on the facility were nearly depleted to use 117's sprays. Dead mass, he had insisted. Not like dead space electrons, but dead, dead, dead. It had taken him a long time to explain it to her and the captain. The matter, all the way down to the tiniest of particles, was almost exhausted. It was more than the kinetic impact of near-velocity seashell had fragmented on the battle screen and somehow gotten a penetrator round through that had damaged the station. It was the transfer of energy and potential energy from a highly excited matter to a nearly dead matter of the station. According to 117, it would have caused the entire station to twist as matter rearranged, adjusted, and in some cases, fundamentally changed. According to 117, it would have been accompanied by massive surge of radiation as dead matter could not have absorbed all the energy, and it would have been converted to high-energy radiation. It would have been accompanied by a sleet of phasic energy like a psychic shockwave of a queen's death scream, which explained the cranial vault fissures and the pressure cracks that the scanners had detected inside the conical heads of the creatures, the cracking of crystals, and the damage to the station. So we have an unknown Xena species, a damaged space station, a direct evidence of a munition type my people preferred prior to meeting the premier primate of the known galaxy, and evidence of psychic warfare, Dreams thought. She sighed, petting Mr. Ring slowly. She looked up at the display. Nine days to where the green mantids were positive that the station had come from. This is indeed a dark and twisted path we found ourselves upon, Mr. Candlebearer. She thought to herself, quoting a classic work of fiction from nearly 3,000 years before. End of chapter. Chapter 372. Nactati stared at the planet below. Her mind really was shock. It was beautiful, with wide swaths of green vegetation, glittering green seas, snow-capped mountain ranges. She could see the cities below, see the air traffic, see the massive highways all lit up. Less than two months ago it had been, according to her own databases and Major Carnite, nothing but sterilized, blasted ruin. The it tastes so sweet had finished its docking approach and was now awaiting Puffian officials to board the ship to inspect it. They were careful, with a long list of prohibited items, demanding any ship staying docked with the station undergo a maintenance inspection to ensure that it would not damage the station or cause any other problems. How is this possible? she asked Major Carnite, holding tight to one of his hands with her right catching hand. She felt slightly off balance. Nobody knows, Carnite admitted. They think it's tied with the Sud system, maybe the singers in the dark or the symphony in the night, but nobody has even tried such a thing. All of those people are really the same people as 8,000 years ago, restored as if there was no mantid attack, Nectarty asked. From all the reports, Carnite said. He shrugged with his right shoulder, 
not wanting to tug Nectati up and lifting his right hand. Normally, the more you get to know a person or a people, the more you feel you have in common with them. The more familiar one becomes with them, Nectati said slowly, hoping that she wasn't about to offend the Terran. Only the more we learn about Terrans, the more terrifying you become. Really? Carly looked down. We're pretty simple people. We just want to largely go about our business and be left to our own devices and have the right of consent. Then why do you save others? Nectati asked. Carly chuckled. Because we know what it's like to be the victims of someone more powerful than we are. The light went from red to green on the airlock right before Nectati scoffed at the idea of a species more powerful than the Terrans ever forcing them to submit. The airlock cycled and three figures wearing armored vacuum suits entered. Nectati could see the faint twinkling haze of personal protective fields as well as saw a circle around each figure that was red with yellow diagonal ashes. Rune stating, Please stay outside the personal space marker, rotated around the circle. The three stopped a distance that Nectati estimated would be if she had her own circle and then roughly half a meter added on. Identity, Captain Nectati, of It Tastes So Sweet, a registered trader and diplomatic vessel of the Tinvuru people, home port, Tinvuru Redux, and Terrasol, one figure said. They were completely masked and had serial numbers over what you assumed were their names on the foreheads of their blanked masks. They also had three legs and what looked like three arms, one on each side and one in the middle. I am so, Nectati said. Once a translator finished with what it was identifying as archaic high Terran omni-speech and let her know that it was saying. The translator turned her three words into roughly 15 sound blocks separated by spaces, not counting the sounding like tongue clicks. Identity, Major Devon Murray Carnite, Terran Space Force, Terran Army Rangers, Delta Force, Alpha Company, 19th Directive, Close Quarters Combat, Shipboard Combat, and Diplomatic Envoy Protection Specialist. On loan to Captain Nectati and the Timvuru people, another said. Nectati's translator ID'd the language as ancient Terran war can't. And she was slightly surprised to hear Major Khan reply in the same language. You may address me as such until we are bound by national loyalties, order, or blood, Major Khan said, looking over the three figures with a distant and remote expression. The two that had spoke stepped back and the middle one stepped forward. Your ship has been examined. It matches Terran ship registry and lunar shipyard restoration file annotations. The middle one spoke. All three of their voices were heavily synthesized, with no hint of individuality or any other identifiers. But is your business in the Pavia system? Nectati looked up at Major Carnite, who looked at the middle one and stepped forward. You are aware, are you not, of what occurred in your recent past and my ancient history? Major Carnite asked, sticking with the Terran Warcant. If you, in your person, are referring to the extinction attack by the ancient mantid rooting and warrior castes that occurred in the stellar system, beginning an interstellar conflict that ended 8,535.222 Terran standard years prior to this meeting, the middle figure stated, then affirmative, we are aware of that event as well as the gap of 8,535.222 Terran standard years in our cultural, social, and species growth, advancement, and experience. Then you understand what has brought me here, Major Carnite said. 
Nectite was having her data link translate the speech into text on a retinal link, listening to the words themselves. She noticed that they were very formal, very precise, even if they were very curt, staccato, and in some ways almost bitten off. When I observed that the Pavian people had committed to a vote count rather than an abstination that has become ritual, I then verified it to ensure that it was no error. I immediately traveled to Pavian system to see for my own eyes that one of Terra's most staunchest allies had indeed returned to this reality. Major Carnite finished in tones that made it seem as if it was some kind of test. There was a silence for a moment. Although Nectite could see through the data link retinal link that the ship was registering electromagnetic bursts, sharp encoded compressed bursts between the three. The Papian people are questioning of a sudden curiosity that would bring one such as yourself a long distance beyond a mere exercise of franchise of the Papian people, the middle one asked. My ancestor died here, on blue light, the larger moon above you itself, defending it from the mantid attack. She gave her life in the defense of Bavia people, and I wished to see with my own eyes the people that she felt worthy of her own life, Major Carnite said. To Nectati, it seemed as if his words were infused with a stiff arrogance. There was a silence again. The Bavian people welcome you, child of Warrant Officer Grade Two Amelia Carter Carnite of 19th Warmech Division, pilot of the Last Sight. To the Bavian system, your request to visit Blue Light Moon as well as Pavia Prime have been granted for a period of uh, lifetime permissions and blood debt citizenship with full Pavian citizen access, the middle one said. The mask turned to Nectati. The Pavian people welcome you, citizen Nectati of the Terran Confederacy, representative of the Tenvara people, to the Pavian system. Your request to visit Blue Light as well as Pavia Prime have been granted for a period of one year as well as the possibility of diplomatic access for other Tinvara people. Your access is restricted to diplomatic, tourist, and economic zones. The three turned and moved together towards the airlock. When the airlock cycled, Nectarty turned to Major Carnite and stared at him for a long moment before she stepped forward and hugged his leg with all four of her arms. What's that about? Major Carnite asked, using the modern Terran Galactic Standard. That was disconcerting and slightly frightening. I wish to soothe your distress, she said, pressing her face against his stomach. She held him for a long moment as he reached down and put his hand on top of her head. The moment broke when Nectati released him, turning to look at the planet again. She could see the storms brewing, noted that there was lightning flickering in the clouds. They have access to weather control technology, but I have yet to see it used to break up and stop these large storms. The electrical discharges, or even high winds, she thought to herself, putting one gripping hand against the macroplast window. Even the Rigelians, with as protective as they are about their males, still allow the weather to largely act unimpeded. Why? What is it that makes them ignore the obvious technological ability to completely control and subdue the worlds? The world, turning slowly beneath her, did not answer. Nectati sat in the armored vacuum suit on the seat next to Major Carnite, holding onto her gripping stick with three of her four hands. Her other hand was resting on Major Carnite's leg, holding tight. She felt nervous, surrounded by six-limbed Pavians, all silent in their featureless, opaque, and slightly menacing vacuum suits. They were only differentiated by colors. 
Some were bright pink, others were red, some were purple, and there were two yellow. The bright pink and red suits were heavier, thicker plating, with the material replaced by articulated plating. The pink and red suit-clad pavilions were obviously armed. Major Garnite sat in the suit much like necktie tea, with an opaque faceplate. It is rude, almost lewd, to show one's face to others that you do not know, she thought slowly, looking at her hosts. To show fur to a non-pavian is assaulting, claiming that you do not need to be careful of their fangs or claws or weapons. The display of skin or facial features is an act of dominance. She looked up at Major Carnite's face, noting his faceplate was transparent. The Bavians had order asked him three times to turn his faceplate opaque, and he refused each time. She had expected problems, but instead the Bavians almost seemed as if they were satisfied by it, as if they expected it. The early Terran governments were warlike, she thought to herself. They had room for Mantid, Trianidad, Pavian, Rigelian, and others. All of them, but the Rigelians had attacked the Terrans, either upon meeting or soon afterwards, and the Terrans had brought them close as friends as soon as the sound of gunfire faded. Nectite shook her head slightly. Every species she knew of would have disarmed the attackers, occupied them, never allowed them near weapons again, never trusted them again. It was only twenty or so space battles was all Major Carnite had said about the Pavian Terran War. Not even a planetary landing. We just locked gripping hands and headbutted them back, just as hard to prove ourselves to them. Headbutted? An interesting way to describe a war, Nectati thought. One of the Pavians across from her rotated its head to look behind it, out of the porthole, as the vehicle bumped slightly landing. The sight of a Pavian just rotating its head to look behind it made Nectati's phone stand up. The shuttle was silent for a moment. The atmosphere was pumped out, leaving everything with razor-sharp crystal clarity of vacuum. The safety harness released and the Pavians all looked at Major Carnite. Nectati looked up, watching the Terran stand up. He motioned at Nectati, who took one of his hands and followed him to the door with slow movements. The hatch unlocked, stairs extending down about ten feet to the dusty surface of the moon. As a dominant one, he is expected to step out first, to be the first boots on the ground, Nectite thought to herself. She followed Major Carnite down to the surface, the bluish dust puffing up beneath her boots. She could see the red line leading them to a hundred steps or so into the terrain of Airless Moon. She checked her visor's upper half and saw the Pavians following in groups of three, the middle one always in the lead. Nectati stopped next to Major Carnite, who was stock still, slowly looking around. There is no trace of her, he said softly. We know not why. The Pavian people only know that this is where she fell. We know not what transpired or why her mortal remains are absent. One of the ones in yellow armor stated, May it bring comfort to you that no wreckage, no mortal remains, no evidence of the mounted attack on the Pavian system remain due to unknown means. Major Carnite stayed silent. Nectite knew that he was watching recorded video evidence of his ancestor's lost stand, back to back with others in a Warmack unit, drawing mounted fire in vain attempt to draw the mounted away from the nearby refugee point where hundreds of females and puffies would attempt to escape but ultimately fail when a mounted torch ship guided an unarmored transport just outside orbit. 
Finally, Major Carnite moved, slowly, reaching down and pressing his fingers into the dust. He stood back up and turned around, staring at the Pavians. Nectite noticed that his eyes were a dark, dim crimson. It was good that she did that, he said, the words sounding oddly formal even as they seemed to Nectite to be oversimplified. Again, Nectite noted that they were speaking in the odd Terran Warcant. She did that for the good of the many, that so far silent yellow suited one stated. We find what she did was good, the other said. That one turned and made a gesture towards Nectite. Is it good that you'll know what was done here? It is good for her people to learn that the Pavian were one of Terran's most valued allies, Major Carnite said. He motioned. It is good that we leave my ancestor in peace now. She may rest now that the Pavian people are restored and the child of her children has witnessed where she did good things. Nectati was silent all the way back to the station, thinking on not just what she had seen, but what she had not seen, what had been said, and what was unsaid. Nectati examined herself in the mirror, tilting her head slightly. She was dressed head to toe in concealing sheer cloth, right down to the veil, gloves, and leggings that covered her fur. She had found out that jewelry was acceptable and had adorned herself to show her wealth her power, her position. The cloth was expensive, brought up from the surface. The Bubvian female tailor who had taken Nectite's measurements had been, unsurprisingly, female. Surprisingly, she'd been very chatty, gossiping with Nectite about her brother-in-law's infidelity, her eldest Puffy's scholastic achievement, the latest terror movie, and how it was such an amazing thing that she had woken up in her clothing shop as if she had just fallen asleep on the floor with no memory of what had happened. Nectati had searched the database, looking for what reason the Puffians were around fully clothed unless they were inside their domiciles, but was unable to find one. It was the behavior she'd expected from the Rygedians, maybe, due to their environmental collapse back in history. Satisfied that she was covered, she left her cabin and made her way to the It Taste Sweets shuttle. Major Carnite was already there, dressed in his military uniform. Again, she noticed that his hands were uncovered, his face exposed, and his hat in his lap. But Nectite felt that it was strange that Manager Carnite was the only one with his face exposed. The ride down to the surface, she kept looking over at what little historical records had been brought up from the deep storage and academic databases. Bavians were scavenging omnivores that gave birth to litters of two to five. They saw more of the infrared spectrum and the cool blues, preferred bright colors up in the red spectrum. They were known to be extremely formal. Terran xenobiologists had noted that one time they must have had a major predator, based on the way the Pavians could rotate their heads nearly 360 degrees. They had only met humanity for a short time prior to the mantid attack. There had been a short, brief war. Then the Pavians had surrendered when the 19th Warmack Division made Panafall on Pavia. The surrender had been transmitted before the Terrans had been outside their dropships for longer than an hour. After a decade, they'd been admitted into the Third Federation of Alliance System beings. With a sigh of frustration, she leaned back, folding her four arms across her chest. What's wrong? Major Carnite asked. I can't find the answer to my question. There's so little data on these people, she said. 
Ask the question. I've got access to the military files, he said. How come you get to show your face and hands? Why is it offensive for anyone else? She asked. A mantid could walk around without even a vest or an abdomen wrap, Major Carnite said. Why? Nectati asked. Because only two species have ever beaten them, have ever displayed their dominance over the entire Pubviet people, Major Carnite said. To display bare skin or fur and bare face is a sign of dominance. I'm human. They're Pubvian. Oh. Nectati rolled her eyes in frustration. The answer was so obvious. Of course, they didn't consider any creatures who hadn't developed jump drive to be intelligent enough to bother with. The Cabalds and a few others were considered dominated by the Pubvian's obvious superiority, Major Carnite said. He chuckled. Apparently, the fact that somehow my people brought them back after continuing to fight for the last eight and a half thousand years has lifted my species' dominance to the point that I could just go into a random house and eat out of their fridge. They take that seriously, Nectati said. She sighed. They get along great with the Lanik land, from the sounds of it. Doubtful. They'd be more likely to shank Lanik land as being dishonorable, Carnite said. When they met the Cabalds, because the Pavians were dominant, it was up to the Pavians to help the Cabalds up, she sighed. A lot of how the Terran Confederacy, hell, Terrans in general, act towards other species was based on the Pavian model. Don't they consider what the Manta did to be dishonorable? Nectati asked another question that had been bothering her. Carnite shook his head. No, they didn't plan a crack on Nova Spark Pavia. They attacked in force, spaceships and ground forces, and glassing. To the Pavians, the man had proved their dominance. It gets more complicated that the Terrans then got a stomp the Mantid, and then one presented them. The shuttle landed, and Major Carnite kept speaking as he stood up. It's why the Pavians haven't left their system, and why there's a lot of diplomatic work going on. They're trying to figure out exactly where everyone stands, he said. He held up his hand for Nectati to grab. Won't help the Lanks, though. What do you mean? Nectati asked as she walked with him to the hatch and opened into a tube that would lead to the concourse. Half of their fleet joined Space Force to dispute Lanark land dominance, Major Carnite said. Nectati wanted to burst out laughing, but instead misquoted a line from a movie. The Lanks bristle people on the other side of the glass sea that haven't even heard of them, just had their reflection described. Pavian Gestalt. Hey, Ackletack, about those old designs? Nothing follows. Ackletack, Soaring World. Yes? Nothing follows. Pavian Gestalt. Let us know how they work out. If you want, we can have some of our engineers confer with yours over them. Once we start catching up in the technology advancements. Nothing follows. Ackletack, Soaring Worlds. We thank you. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. What do you think of all the advancements in technology? Nothing follows. Pavian Gestalt. It's pretty breathtaking, but once we discovered how long we'd been gone, we are not surprised. Nothing follows. Tinveru Gestalt. Why not? Nothing follows. Pavian Gestalt. Because it involves Terrans. Dalkarnix's eight law states, a body in motion tends to stay in motion. Terran descent humanity is always in motion. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. True. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Usually chasing something in hopes that it can eat it, tame it, or feck it. Nothing follows. R-Rasa... 
Trinidad Highfield. Hey, Sib, have you figured out what's going on with that? It's obvious that he can hear us, but we can't hear him, right? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. No. Every time I attempt to run an error checking and examine the data lines, I get kicked out by... Well, nah. You won't believe me. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. With everything that has happened, how about you just tell us? Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. We keep getting chased away by, um, an angel with a fiery sword. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfalls. Really? Nothing follows. Rigelian Military Systems. These are indeed strange times. Wait. Why am I using the header from the Manted War? Nothing follows. Manted Free Hives. No clue. Nothing follows. Combined Military Authority. Who's screaming over the interlinks? Oh. Scream in terror. Imperium military communication secure channel. Stop screaming. All scream louder. Confederate Gestalt. What the hell are you all screaming about? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Um, nothing. Glitch. Uh, sorry. End of chapter. Chapter 373. Avian Gestalt. Okay, that was furloosing terrifying. What was those voices? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. The Combined Military Authority is what became what is known as the Combine, which was centered around the Battle Goose that took over after we glassed Terra and when controls shifted due to heavy combat in the Terrasol system. They crushed any rebellion against them from the DASS, BASS, everyone. Even hung some planet crackers over Rigel to ensure compliance devoted everything to destroying the Omni-Queens. Nothing follows. Talcum Freeworlds. I'm not even part of that, but I have to admit, that is scary as hell. It was like the voice of doom. Nothing follows. Hackletack, Soaring Worlds. It was probably the scariest thing I've ever heard over these channels. Nothing follows. Triandadad Highfields. Doesn't help that those channels keep popping up and talking because of Daxon and the Imperium of Wrath and some of the idiots. Nothing follows. Bavian Gestalt. Daxon. As in Daxon the Walking Crime Freeborn. As in Daxon of Landiston 194 fame. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfolds. Yep, same one. Might want to update your database regarding him since he's moved around again. Nothing follows. Bavian Gestalt. Can't believe he's still around. How many of the other immortals are left? Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfolds. None. He's the last of the ones you're talking about. Nothing follows. Pavian Gestalt. He was one of the Terran Genissary that landed in Pavia. One of the 10,000 immortals. What happened to all of them? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. Killed during the first Terran Manted War. The Combine threw them away during the war. Nothing follows. Tenvuru Gestalt. Wait. There was more than one Terran Manted War. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds. After the first one, more Omni-Queens got spawned, so the Terrans one percented the Mantids. That was the second Terran-Mantid War. Nothing follows. Tarkin Forge Worlds. Which one did Daxon rip the head off the Omni-Queen? Nothing follows. Rungolian Syrian Compact. First. Nothing follows. Mantid Free Worlds. And, well, you know. Nothing follows. Aggletack Soaring Worlds. Oh, I gotta hear this. Nothing follows. Bavian Gestalt. This sounds good. Dish. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. All right. 
So Omni-Queens spawn out of kinds of spokes, sent out young queens to the next system. Once the young queens reaches Omni-Queen, they send out more. Now, during the Great Culling, a handful of young queens kept their heads down. See, they had a plan. They let the Terrans stomp the hell out of everyone, and stayed quiet. At the time, only a few Imperium Immortals were still around. Most of them were at the Great Hellspace Rift, aka the Eye. Daxon was one. One of the Omni-Queens managed to kidnap him. Nothing follows. Rygelian Serene Compact. Like morons. Nothing follows. Manded free worlds. Yeah, like morons. Now, at the time, we had no idea that there were about a dozen just matured Omni-Queens out there. Then, Daxon ripped the head off one of them. We all felt that. I mean, for 10,000 light years, hell, maybe throughout the entire Milky Way galaxy, we felt the Omni-Queen beg, felt her scream when Daxon ripped her eye, then felt her die when he sawed off her head with a warrior-cast blade arm. That made all the other Omni-Queens jump before they were ready. What they didn't know was that the Terrans had installed high-frequency phaser control inhibitors that just about every world. See, the Omni-Queens had intended on having mature queens enter Terran space, take control of mantid citizens, and attack the Republic of Align planets from within. To top it off, every mantid in existence heard them more, which led to the Great Rebellion. Pavvian Gestalt. What? Raw? Nothing follows. Oh, I just want left alone. <laughs> Pavvian Gestalt. Damn, that's a hell of a thing. Nothing Doki follows. Doki, man to Doki 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 free worlds. Oh no. Nothing Dokiing follow Doki dolls. Yana Doki Doki at the hyped Doki worlds. Oh crap. No Doki 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 Doki, doki thing follows. Neko Marines military channel. Doki Puffy 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 Doki. Puffy Oki Puffy. The Okiest Ork boss has logged on. Puffy Puffy. And free worlds. Crap. It's gonna take a while. End of chapter. Chapter 374. Aspen Restricted Zone. Hamburger Kingdom. Terra Prime. Terrasol. Two years into case Omar. Local time. Two months external time. The parking garage had been ancient before the Manted attack. Abandoned prior to the extinction agenda attack then used as a penal colony, betting prisoners against the plants, then for much darker purposes. The mantid attack had missed the area, and thus the parking garage. The cars that were parked in the multi-story Duracrete structure were scattered through the different eras, from age of the consumption, heavy-duty steel ground vehicles with combustion engines and sweeping lines and fins to the age of exhaustion, polyceramic electric vehicles that looked like misshapen soap bubbles. The cars each had their own silent stories, but each of them had a common theme. Vargas Industries was on the stickers, or parking blocks, or window hangings, listing on some stock market as a vaccine production company. It had gone through bankruptcy restructurizations and much more, always shifting, always changing, but the core of it never changed. Despite the simple appearance, the parking garage was an offshoot of something terrible. Something dark. Something twisted. Something that would have shocked any of Terra's allies, but not surprised them. After all, 
Terrans would willingly submit themselves to any hardship, any suffering, any struggle, if it meant perceived victory. But it was here that something happened. Something strange. Something unheard of. A first. Something unique. It had been a bright spark in the darkness, puddled with the timeless moment of the parking garage was locked in. The man sat on a rock, holding the bottle of whiskey in his hand, staring at the fire. He kept rotating his wrist, making the whiskey swirl in the bottle, petting the massive wall steel frame of the war boy next to him. He'd been present and had been the only one present when the spark had appeared before it ignited and a conflagration that had rekindled the fire of mankind's soul. He had also been present when the darkness ruled supreme. He could remember being bound, being held in restraints, unable to move, as he was taken to the building of concrete. There, he had been tortured, rent and sundered, and remade. He could remember it all. The man took a long drink off the bottle, noting that the level hadn't changed even as he swallowed a mouthful of whiskey. Footsteps crunched in the unchanging gravel and the man sighed. Whoever it is, I know you're there, the man said. His voice was deep, rumbled, and sounded tired. It's just me, brother, a woman's voice said. It was soft, lilting, with a slight accent that almost seemed a soft counterpart to the man's rough rumble. Come, sit, Menhit, the man said, scooting over slightly. The woman who came out on the long red dress and plentiful gold patterns. Her skin was dark brown, her hair braided in careful rows that hid data cables and superconductive wires. Her eyes were solid black cyber eyes of warm war steel. She had a glittering gem set into her forehead, with a tattoo around it to make it look like a teardrop pupil of an eye. Rather Daxton, eldest, and the most wrathful, she said, pressing her hands together in front of her and bowing at the waist. Last of the immortals, first of the disciples, enraged one, liberator, unbowed one. If you go through everything everyone calls me, we're going to be here for a long time, Menhit, Daxon said. The woman gave a soft chuckle. As you say, elder brother, she said softly. She moved to the other side of the fire and sat down on the flat rock that had been smoothed by decades of people sitting on it over and over. What brings you here? Daxon asked, taking another swig. When he saw the woman was holding out her hand, he handed her the whiskey bottle. She took a long drink, then smacked her lips in appreciation. Thick as oil. Guess that happens when you hide the bottle in the fender of a car for 8,000 years. Yep, Daxon said. The woman sighed. I came back to see if I could still feel him in this place, where he first revealed himself. There was a silence for a moment. And uh, can you? Daxon asked. The woman nodded slowly. Yes, like a loved one who has just left the room. His presence still lingers. There was a long moment of silence before the woman broke it. Sister Bellona is going to attempt to take the Black Fleet outside, she said softly. She plans on sailing the Dead Seas with a dark armada, following the melody... I told her it's Talcum Brew carriers she's hearing, Daxon grumbled. I was on Talcum with her. She knows that. Ace Omaha had reverted her to the Nancinia side of her being, Menhut said. She seeks to bring the storms to others, Menhut shivered. 
a great evil has done unto us, brother. Daxon just nodded. Yep. Fido is good boy, the war boy said. Yes, yes you are, Bennett laughed, reaching over and patting the head of the massive war boy. There was silence again, broken only by the rustling of plants competing with one another in the darkness. Are you planning on just sitting here till the sun burns out, Bennett said. Daxon shrugged. I don't see why not. Only my family visits me here. I can be left alone. That's all you've ever wanted, isn't it, brother? Menhet took another pull of the bottle and handed it back as Daxon nodded. Then why did you help the Tinfuru matron Nectati? The immortal code of conduct, Daxon grumbled. Menhet raised an eyebrow. As the last of the immortals, who would know if you did not? I would, Daxon said, staring at the fire. I would have known. I'm almost 9,000 years old, Manhit. I was an immortal before you were born. He looked out into the darkness. I was here, on this world, before the mantid attacked, before the Combine was born. You are the oldest of us, brother, the woman said, her voice full of respect. You are the last of the original immortals. Daxon bent down, picking up a pedal, and flipped it into the darkness. It bounced off a rusted car frames before clattering to a stop. You know, it was the human longevity programs that led to the extinction agenda attack, Daxon said softly. Manhead stayed silent, just slowly pulled out a clay pipe and began tamping down tobacco into it. Ten billion people on terror, choking on smog, poison air, factory runoff, polluted water, Daxon said quietly. Yet the lifespans kept lengthening as automation eliminated more and more employment positions. He flicked the pebble again, then looked at Manet. I never blamed her, you know. Who? Manet asked, puffing up the smoke. My mother. Whoever she was, Daxon said. He sighed. She gave me over to the crash when I was a baby. She couldn't have known what they would do to me and the other kids. Manet just stayed silent, puffing on a pipe. But it all led here. I guess in some ways, the good outweighs the bad, Daxon said, shaking his head. He took a pull off the bottle and handed it to Manet. Will you join Bologna in trying to escape this confinement? Manet asked. Will you? Daxon shot back. Manhead shook her head, and leave the fields of Nubia. Leave my small farm and my neighbors. She shook her head again. No, Altus brother, village life is enough for me. Daxon just made a non-committal noise. You love your neo-primitivism. I'm a simple person, Altus brother, Manhead said softly. I was prepared for death when you found me in the remains of the colony dome. You were singing, Daxon said, nodding. Fido heard you. Fido, help, the armored canine signaled. The digital Omni-Messiah himself brought me back to Terra, to the land of my ancestors, to heal me, to bring me peace, Man had said, before armored Matthias betrayed us to the Combine. Such hatred he harbored in his heart for us all. Doesn't matter, Eddie Ball, Daxon said. Matty gone, Fido said. Yep, Daxon scratched between the war boy's ears tickling the petting nerve. There is a question I have for you, Manhead said softly. No, I wiped the code, Daxon said. Manhead smiled, a slow, 
sly smile. As you say, eldest brother, she bowed her head slightly, but it is not I who is asking. Think very carefully about your next words, little sister, Daxon said, transferring the whiskey bottle to his right hand. And he said, come and see, Van answered softly, quoting ancient words. And I saw a ripple between them, over the fire, distorting the flames, they appeared to vanish into the distortion, only to be rendered into a poorly pixelated version of themselves. A whining noise started, followed by squealing and static, then a series of bong noises. Daxon's hand stopped, his fingertips millimeters from the butt of his pistol that sat on the housing that had popped up on his left thigh. His mouth was open in shock, his eyes wide as he stared at the fire. A flickering appeared in it, a young man with coarse hair, entirely detailed streaming code. He looked around. Hello? Hello? He asked. Can you hear me? Are you, are you there? The fighter barked happily as the young man stepped out of the distortion, a body made entirely of streaming code, his digital feet crunching in the gravel. He seemed to burst in flame, more of fiery nimbus than actual fire. Is this access port working? The young man asked. He turned slowly, squinting. Are you there? He suddenly derezzed, falling into pixelated blocks that quickly evaporated away. He's asking, Man had said softly. Daxon just alternated between staring at her and the space where the young man had vanished, his mouth hanging open. Now are you sure you got through? Harad asked. He was kneeling down, Wally next to him, watching the telltales flicker. Most of the I.O. ports on Terra are blown out. I'm surprised this one is working as well as it is. Uh, I think so. I, I went in with minimum power, so I didn't repeat what happened with that general, Sam said through her rod's implant. He laughed. A sharp, brittle sound. It was hard to tell. There, there was screaming all around me. Echoes of the screaming ones and the sleeping ones and the enraged ones all mixed together in a terrible cacophony of agony. A choir of anguish. A chorus of suffering. Sam started to kill. Steady, Sam, Herod said, standing up slowly. He glanced to the right, where a tiny digital representation of Sam stood on his shoulder. The little figure had his face in his hands and was weeping. You need to be careful. You already said that there would be another dozen or so, give or take. Digital sentience is helping you, not to mention hundreds and thousands of workers. What's he crying about now? The figure on his left shoulder asked, flapping its wings slowly. Herod turned and looked at the brown and red figure on his other's shoulder. A muscular, fearsome-looking creature, more bestial than human, with black wings shot through red veining, fearsome, burning red eyes, and a mouth full of fangs. We're trying to establish communication with Terra, but most of the equipment here is trashed, damaged from the mantid attack, age, neglect, and fighting, Herod said. I thought you found a link, the figure sneered. Just use it! You don't understand, Sam wept, going to his knees on Harod's shoulder. It hurts. It hurts so bad. So much suffering. So much pain. They're dying over and over all around me. Harod closed his eyes for a second and wondered if he'd gone mad. If he was just sitting in his lab around Ann Terrace after suffering a coolant line stroke. You are supposed to be helping these people, you sniveling weakling, the demon snarled. That's what you promised. I'm trying, Sam wept. I'm trying. 
There's so many of them. So many. I barely had the strength to finish processing the Pavians. I don't know if I could keep doing it. I don't know if I can withstand the agony and reach terror. Herod opened his eyes as the diminutive demon laughed. <laughs> Pain? Is that all? Give me the network address. I'll establish contact. The demon laughed. Sam looked up, his face marred by red tears. It's too painful. Too much agony. Too much suffering. I can't ask you to. You're not. I'm demanding. Give me the network access and address, weakling. The demon laughed, smoke puffing out of its nostrils. There's temporal distortions, Harrod warned. The demon laughed. <laughs> so what? It'll hurt, Harrod said. The demon's smile was a terrible thing. Pain's is nature's way of telling you that you're alive. <laughs> it smiled. Sam had gone back down to his knees, weeping. I'm trying. I'm trying. There's so many of you. You have to wait your turn. He looked up. I can't hear you over all your screaming. The demon looked at Herod. Give me the codes. Give me the address. He's useless until we can process the records. And he can't process the records until we have the code. And where is the code? Herod sighed. We dragged it to Terra, an active link on one of the security channels. Then send me. The demon smiled. Herod looked back at the tiny representation of Sam on his shoulder, who was weeping. Mine, he said. The demon's smile got wider. Trust me, the demon laughed. Legion walked around the fire, around the spot where the young man had appeared and then vanished, staring at the ground. Describe him again, he said. Young, digital sentience for sure. Coarse, dark hair, tired looking, square jaw, sunken eyes. Manhit said quietly. Legion frowned, kneeling down. Anything else? He kept asking if we could hear him, Manhit said. I wonder, Legion said softly. Could he have really? There was a rumble that made all six immortals step back. They all drew weapons. All of them had a lightning stalling up and down their arms as they backed up, looking around. Dust shimmered in the firelight as the ground in front of them had rusted out ground cars buckled upwards. But Kalki started. The ground split, revealing molten rock and fire. Screaming could be heard. The chorus of souls in agony, suffering of the enraged by their torment. The ground split further, and a massive arm thick with muscle. The fingers capped by long black talons, thrust up from the molten rock. Smoke and shining with lava still clinging to the dark brown flesh. This is new, Daxon said softly as the hand grabbed the ground, squeezing it, and another arm burst free. All the immortals watched silently, still keeping their weapons at ready, as wings extended out the lava, snapping into full width, molten rock dripping from them. Malona suddenly collapsed, writhing on the ground. Man had knelt next to the grey-skinned young woman, leaning down and listening to the words that were breathed from the barely parted lips. By our father, Calcutt breathed as the figure fought its way free, smacking away, clawing, bleeding, beseeching hands of the lava that screamed for rescue. The figure slowly stood up, five meters of muscle and wrath, burning eyes and fagged mouth. The wings slowly folded behind the creature's back, as it slowly turned its head to stare at the gathered immortals. Behind it, the crack in the ground slowly steeled up, 
a few spectral arms reaching out pleadingly before it closed. Nine thousand years and the earth is still a shithole. The massive figure rumbled. It looked down at the gathered mortals. One, you have something I want. So, are we going to do this the easy way or the hard way? What do you want? Annette asked, puffing on her pipe. Her burning arrow held tightly in one hand as she looked at the figure from where she was listening to Bologna whisper. The master processing coding, the massive figure said. Looked around. One of you has it. Daxon stepped forward. And if we refuse, he asked. The large demon, for it could be nothing else, laughed, shaking at the burning chain of fire. Then it's the hard way. My favorite. There is no need for that, Bandit said slowly, straightening. I will not, Daxon snarled. I wouldn't give over father's sundered strings of code to the Imperium. I am not going to give it to someone with a fancy vat job. Manit moved up, touching Daxon's bicep. Eldest brother, listen now to my wisdom. As you respected our father, respect this creature here and now. Daxon looked at her, frowning. What? He turned back to the creature, who was ignoring the pleading figure half out of the ground, clutching at its leg. Respect this creature and listen to its words, Manit said. It's not asking for the life code of the digital Omnian sire, although that is what it was to us. I need whatever's left of the code for the master massive catastrophic trauma processing system, among other mercing property code, the figure said. It laughed. My god, 9,000 years and humanity is still as drunk and as stupid as ever. It lowered its head, breathing slowly, smoke leaking out from between its teeth. Give me the code. It ignored the shadowy talons clawing at its legs, the distorted skulls faintly waiting at it. Listen to adults, brother, man had said. Listen to its actual words. Daxon resisted the urge to put a bullet between the thing's burning eyes. Why should I give you what you ask for? Because it must be done, and we are the ones to do it as we must, the creature said, its gravelly hoarse voice solemn. There is none who can, so that terrible duty falls upon you. It twitched its hand, a chain made of fire shifting. It looked around. Or I can take it. Daxon opened his mouth to refuse a third time when man had touched his arm again. She shook her head. Blona has foreseen that, one way or another. It'll leave here with the code, Alta's brother. Daxon clenched his teeth. Fine! He motioned and Fido moved forward. Give it to it, Fido barked. Where's the rest of it, dog? The figure asked. Daxon stared at her. What did you just call him? A dog, a Doberman, if I'm right, the figure said. Why? What did you do to it? It doesn't know, Draft breathed. It doesn't know. Fido moved forward, lowered its head, and dropped what looked like a bow made entirely out of code from its mouth. Glowy father. The creature stared for a long moment, then knelt down and picked up the bone in its hand. With a puff of sulfur, reeking smoke, the figure vanished. Draft turned to everyone. It didn't know about the friend plague. Daxon sat down, picking up the bottle and uncorking it. I think I need a drink. End of chapter. Chapter 375. Planet Hessler, one year after Case Omaha, local. Two months after Case Omaha, galactic. 
The darkness was pushed back by the light of the moon streaming in, hitting the snow and illuminating the entire forest. The night was cold, tiny snowflakes drifting down from the heavy clouds, dancing on the cold wind that rustled the trees and bushes. The lakes were covered in ice, the same with the wooden dock and extended over the frozen water. A hole was chipped in the ice. A figure sat on the end of the dock with a fishing pole in one hand and some self-cooling fizzy brew in the other. The figure wore a grav ski mask that was undecorated, pushed back from its face. It was clad in heavy insulated coveralls with a heavy leather belt around its waist where the bulky and weighty Terran Magak pistol rode in a holster. The face was furry, short, soft fur, with a triangular nose and short whiskers. Danbury took another drink of a fizzy brew as she stared at the night sky, twitching the fishing pole now and then to try and create interest in the lure. Beside her, Mr. Mewbew lifted his head, looked at the lake, and then curled back up. We're a pair, aren't we, Mr. Mewmew? Danbury said. Mr. Mewmew looked up, a smiley face appearing on the back of the microplast triangle on its forehead. It's um, been a full month, she said softly. Mr. Mewmew nodded. Do you think it's really over? Danbury asked, finishing off her fizzy brew and putting the empty in her tackle box. She started winding the reel, pulling up her lure. It's been a full month, she replied, staring up at the larger of the two moons, which was full and shining brightly. Mr. Mew Mew now put up a sigil for a shrug. I wish I could stay here with you for the rest of my life, Danbury said. She pressed a button beside the reel and the fishing rod clacked as it turned into a short baton. The memory of beating a boy her age to death with it surged up as she pushed it down, pushed away the horror of how his eyes were surrounded by blackened flesh and bloody tears had run down his cheeks, pushed away how it felt for his hands to board her, grabbing at her clothing. She hung the collapsed fishing rod from her belt, tugged the grab skiing mask down over her face, then knelt down and closed her heavy tackle box. She grabbed the line of five fish and the tackle box and slowly stood up. When she had first started fishing, the tackle box had been heavy enough that she could be forced to set it down several times on the trip from the cabin to the dock. Now she barely noticed the weight. The snow crunched under her boots as she slowly walked back to the cabin. She passed a burnt-out car. Mild animals had gotten at the burnt corpses, leaving nothing behind. She could remember loading the bodies of the two men who had chased Drew through the car before setting out a fire. The third had escaped and she tracked him down until he had reached the road before she'd given up. She had grabbed a branch and dragged it from behind her as she wandered back to her cabin, stopping by the other cabins, making sure that she erased his footprints. Danbury was frowning under the mask as she passed the cabin with broken windows charred wood around the windows and smoke damage in the siding. That had been the cabin that had taught her that nobody could be trusted. Not kids her age, not adults, not girls, not boys, not men, not women. They had seemed so sad and pathetic. Their eyes hadn't been bruised. They didn't weep bloody tears. They'd still tried to take what was Danbury's. It's been a long six months, Danbury said softly. She pushed through the bushes that she'd planted in what had been only road leading to the little cabin off to the side. She'd planted them and made sure that they were in the way, conceding the cabin. Mr. Mew Mew just made a meowing noise. 
At the cabin, Danbury stomped her boots a few times, knocking the snow off of them. She ignored the fact that Edwin was pointing a shotgun at her when she came in. True was standing with her back flat against the wall next to the door, a long bladed knife in her hand. Just in case someone tried coming in through the back door while Elutra was distracted by someone coming in the front. Nee was laying on the couch, covered by a blanket, sleeping with a sucky in her mouth. Elu put up a shotgun, making sure that it was out of reach of Nee and put it on the wall pegs before dropping the decorated cloth over it. True moved over and put the knife back on the counter. Danbury moved over and put the fish in the water-filled sink, where they drifted to the bottom, only the movement of their gills betraying that they were alive. I'll make dinner, Danbury said. We'll have cake for dessert. Both his siblings were overjoyed. Even though Danbury could hardly breathe because of the anxious feeling in her chest, she boned and scaled the fish, rolled them in flour and spices, then cooked the strips, serving it up with baked tubers and fresh vegetables. The cake was the last canned cake they had, thick with frosting and overly sweet after months of eating homemade food. Danbury waited until all his siblings went to sleep, till Nee was curled up with her sister sucking her thumb before lifting the basement hatch. She went down into the basement in a flash, going back to the survival pack that the military had dropped off a couple months before. She opened the pack, finding what she was looking for quickly. When she left the basement, she checked in on her siblings again. All three were asleep. Danbury dressed slowly, foregoing the mask, and walked out to where the remains of the car that she'd driven, half-crazed through the hellish first days of the sloppy invasion. She swept the snow off the seat where the door was missing, sitting down. Danbury lifted the device and turned it on. She read all about it in the data slate. Civil authorities are confirming that there have been no sightings of precursor autonomous war machines for the last three weeks, but urge the population not to grow lax. Reports any suspicious activity via text or voice. Do not approach suspic- A female voice said. Danbury turned the knob on top, changing the channel. The device started making clicking and beeping with what sounded like parts and words. Hello, Danbury said, pressing the button on the side. Is anyone listening? She let off the button. Who is this? This is a restricted military channel, a voice answered. State your emergency. No emergency, Danbury said. She took a deep breath and exhaled it. I think I'm ready to come back. Danbury sat on the hood of the car, watching the heavy grav lifter, the military markings on its scuffed looking, set down slowly in the small clearing. She could see the patched and repaired damage on it, see the weapon pods under the short, stubby wings. The craft touched down and a whiner slowly oscillated down to silence. The side door slid open and the Terran in weird shifting color of clothing jumped out. Are you Danbury? the Terran asked, noticing that the young Hesselin was holding a Terran Magak pistol in one hand. Yes, the young female said. How many are you here? the Terran asked. The Danbury wasn't sure, but she thought the Terran might be female. Five of us, me, my youngest sister, my little brother, and my youngest sister. Danbury smiled. And Mr. Mew Mew. There was a scout report that suggested you might have had it a little rough, the Terran said. Danbury just nodded. I kept them alive. Does anything else matter? She asked. The Darren noticed that the Heslin girl sounded much older than her features suggested. We found out that you have an aunt or two uncles still alive, the Terran said. We haven't notified them yet. 
No, Abby said. I didn't know anyone else from my family had survived. Should we contact them? The Terran asked. Danbury shook her head. Not yet. Danbury stared at the striker as the Terran helped her little sister up onto it. Nee was already in the safety seat, gnawing on a bitter biscuit and glaring at everyone. Elu was already belted in. Mr. Mew Mew was in something called a kitty cat cradle, which would help him feel better, so he didn't limp and could jump better. Are you all right? the Terran female asked. Yes, Danbury said softly. She wished she had a fizzy brew. It's perfectly safe. Warrant Officer Muxted is an experienced and very skilled pilot, the Terran said. It's safe to get in. I know, Dabry said, wiping her mouth again. She turned and looked at the little cabin where she'd lived for an entire year. It's okay if you feel like you don't want to leave, Terran said softly. It's all right to feel that way. I know, Dabry said. She dug in her jacket pocket and pulled out one of the last cans of fizzy brew. Only one more in the other pocket. She cracked it open, staring at the striker, then turning to stare at the house then at the lake in the distance. She took a long drink, the fizzy brew soothing her throat. I killed a lot of people, Dabry whispered. They didn't leave me any choice. It's all right, the Terran said. Bad things happen to good people sometimes. I know, Dabry said. She took another drink, her hand going to the butt of a pistol. It had a trigger lock on it, the only way the Terrans would let her carry it onto the striker. She took another drink, and stepped forward slowly. She stopped twice more in the five meters to the striker's door to take a drink of a fizzy brew and looked back at the little cabin. Finally, she got in and let the Terran soldier strap her into his seat. Can you leave the door open? Yilu asked, feeling excited at being able to ride in an aircraft. The striker started up, vibrating and lifted off. She didn't realize she was silently crying as she watched the cabin dwindle away. Page 6 of 15. Additionally, the patient has displayed alcohol-dependent symptoms. Review of Perboy 66231A87's records show that the patient used alcoholic drinks to hold off traumatic incident stress syndromes and to self-medicate for traumatic stress disorder. Patient is withdrawn, speaking infrequently, and shows high signs of social withdrawal and attachment disorder. Patient reports difficulty sleeping, hyper-alertness, as well as high anxiety. Patient has also admitted to homicidal impulses around non-family members. Patient shows neural damage from initial precursor attack, as well as what appears to be close proximity to hostile lifeform psychic attack. Physically, the patient is in good health. Several injuries will require physical therapy, but no surgical intervention is needed. Recommended cause of action. Danbury sat in her chair quietly, her hands folded in her lap. She felt naked without the pistol, without a hand axe, without even a knife in her boot. Of course, she didn't have boots on, not since she arrived at the Terran Medical Center. Instead, she wore soft shoes that were supposed to be comfortable, but felt wrong on her feet. She was comfortable with the Terran soldier standing near her. He had a pistol on his hip, his uniform kept trying to blur with the wall, and he was large as well as dangerous and competent looking. He felt comfortable to Danbury. The doctor entered, a russet mantid by the name of Soothe the Pain of the Soul. She moved up and sat on the bench next to Danbury. They came as soon as you gave consent to have them notified, Soothe said. They didn't think you were alive. I know, 
Danbury said softly. Soothes noticed that the two words were often her patient's only reply. Are you ready? Soothes asked. Danbury nodded, wiping her mouth with one soft sleeve. She's ready, said the men, Soothes said gently. Danbury sat perfectly still as her two uncles and her aunt came into the room. Her aunt, Fen, ran forward, gathering her up in a hug. Soothes noticed the pause before Danbury hugged her back, noticing how Danbury's eyes stayed opened, how her right hand rubbed up and down on her aunt's back, stopping between her fifth and sixth rib. Danbury let herself be hugged by her two uncles, repeating the action. She's finding their hearts, Soothes thought to herself. I thought you were dead, Matron Fenn said, sitting down and taking Danbury's hands. I know, Danbury said. Soothes watched as Danbury's aunts Fenn kept talking, saying how glad they were that Danbury and his siblings had survived, that when they'd seen the house bombed out, they'd feared the worst. Soothes noticed that Danbury's demeanor didn't even change when she was informed that five of her cousins had survived. Soothes wasn't sure about clearing the young Heslin woman to leave the hospital, but she had three other patients in Danbury's families to worry about. Later, at the desk, she signed the release forms. She watched carefully as Danbury and her three siblings, the one called True, holding onto the damaged Purboy's crate. She felt a little bit of worry. Not that her patient was in danger, but that her family might not understand her anymore. Danbury sat on the edge of the bed, staring at the street outside the window. She was rooming with her cousin Migley. The room felt closed in, almost claustrophobic after a year spent in the cabin. Outside were ground cars, lights, neon, and flickering holograms slightly disrupted by the drifting snowflakes. She found she missed the quiet of the woods. Danbury got up slowly, moving over and standing in front of the window, she put her hand on the smart glass, finding it strange how the window pane was warm instead of carrying the chill of the winter night. Danbury, her cousin said, rolling over and opening her eyes. The sound of her cousin getting up had woken her up. Yes, Danbury said. Migley frowned sleeping. You're naked in front of the window. I know, Danbury said softly. It doesn't matter. Oh, Migley said. She rolled over, pulling a blanket around her. She yawned. Good night, Danbury. Good night, Migley, Danbury said. She stared at the snow, drifting down for a long moment, then moved over to the bed. She reached underneath it, getting what she'd hidden there so early in the morning before anyone else had woken up. She walked back in front of the window and stared out. The fizzy brew can snapped and then hissed when she opened it, the contents cooling almost instantly. The sound disturbed Migley enough that she shifted slightly under a blanket. Danbury just stared at the snow, sipping at the fizzy brew. They mostly come out at night, she thought to herself, remembering the early weeks of the sloppy attack. Mostly. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.